The first reading this morning is from the second chapter of Matthew. In the only account in the Gospels of the journey of the Magi, Matthew weaves together Eastern astrological wisdom with Jewish messianic hopes to communicate the universal significance of the birth of the Christ. King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they sent out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy, on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. you pray with me? O oh, you who are light of the world, draw us out of our darkness. O oh, you who are the light of the world, resound in that place within us, that place that compels moths to fly toward light, that place which compels us to step out into the sun and know its thawing heat that warms us through. O oh, you who are light of the world, who lit the way for the Magi in search of wisdom, in search of truth, in search of that which is most real, light our way now. Our next step 
and the next and the next on our journey toward the Christ, toward the spirit of unconditional love. O oh, you who are light of the world, forgive us for choosing the dark, for hiding under the shelters of ego and fear and greed, for hiding in the places where shame and guilt and half-truths and false stories flourish. Forgive us. It seems so promising, but it keeps coming up short, leaving us thirsty and hungry, never satisfied. O oh, you who are the light of the world, we humbly repent, we let go, and we step out. But yet, despite our attempts to look elsewhere, your light remains. It has always been, is now, and will ever be. Whether we follow it or not, it remains. Whether we step into it or not, it remains. Whether we walk by it or not, it remains. The ultimate grace, the grace of allowing, of remaining, of being, not dependent on anything else. Ultimate grace, light of the world, illumine us, draw us, warm us, heal us until we too shine boldly, unfiltered, uninhibited Christ lights of the world. May it be so. Amen. as we learn why all Jerusalem was frightened along with Herod. The despotic ruler known for his ruthlessness in maintaining power at all costs issues a decree that would soon become known as the slaughter of the innocents. In response to this solemn tale, please remain standing for a congressional congregational singing of the Coventry Carol, a hymn of Now after the Magi had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up 
took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He would be called a Nazarene. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. It is a sticky hot summer day in medieval England. The town square is buzzing as the crowd has grown to an unmanageable size, disrupting the normal flow of foot traffic and sparking more than one frustrated outburst from a vendor trying to push his wheelbarrow through the winding streets. Today is the feast of Corpus Christi or in English, the body of Christ, a celebration of the Eucharist. Most of the townspeople of Coventry have come to expect the chaos of this feast day, which annually serves as the kickoff to a week-long fair, an oasis of rest and celebration in the middle of the long, hot summer. Soon enough, the large two-story wagons will begin to rumble down the cobblestone streets to begin the cycle of mystery plays, to tell the sacred stories in a perhaps not so sacred fashion, from the creation of the world to the drama of revelation. The wagons themselves, also known as pageants, are massive constructions of iron and wood with a platform on the upper level. Each depicts one of 10 different stories in the biblical narrative, and each is hosted by a different craft guild. The Weaver's Guild, for instance, tells the story of 12-year-old Jesus lost in the temple, 
while the Draper's Guild focuses in on the doomsday images in Revelation, complete with a large mechanical mouth of hell on one side with built-in machinery to raise and lower the actors in and out of eternal torment. It's quite dramatic, medieval even. I was proud of that one. <laughs> but the pageant of the shearmen and the tailors is the one we're most interested in. This double wagon spectacle with so many scene changes that it requires two pageants tells the story of the birth of Christ. And it covers a larger scope than our modern retellings often do, beginning with the angel delivering the news to Mary and concluding not with the birth in the stable or even with the gifts of the Magi, but with an angry King Herod, with the flight into Egypt, and with the ensuing massacre of the innocents. It is from this mystery play that the ancient Coventry carol, the one we've just sung, has been passed down to us, surviving eight centuries, to offer us its haunting melody, a lullaby for the hunted Christ child, or perhaps a requiem for the lost children of Bethlehem. Luli, lule, thou little tiny child, bye-bye, luli, lule. In the play, it serves as a lullaby sung by the mothers of Bethlehem to quiet their children as Herod's soldiers enter the city with their orders to kill all little boys under the age of two. Can you hear them whisper singing? Can you imagine living in a time and place where this was the way governments behaved? But let's back up to remember how the town of Bethlehem has come to face this crisis in the first place. In Matthew's telling of the birth of Christ, the Magi from the east have studied the skies and seen a star that has led them to leave everything they know and to set out on a journey toward the unknown. In the process of following that star, they make the assumptions wise men might make, that stars herald kings and that kings reside in palaces. And so they believe their journey is leading them to, Beth to Jerusalem, an important city, to see an important person. In the story of the wise men, geography is significant, both because of what it tells us about who and what Matthew wants to communicate as valuable, and because of what Matthew is doing with the symbolism of place. The wise men come from the east, from outside the bounds of God's country. And so they carry with them a symbolic representation of all those whose origins lie in unexpected places. All those who are considered outsiders, Gentiles, foreigners. And yet in his telling, these foreigners are the first to recognize this moment for the sacred event that it is. The arrival of the Magi also serves as a plot device, moving the story along from its beginning in Bethlehem, previously a place of little importance, to its culmination in the flight of the Holy Family down into Egypt, a place with a historical significance for the people of Israel, to say the least. 
Matthew will invoke the Hebrew scriptures more than any of the other gospels with that phrase, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And he does this because he's interested in presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish hopes. Scholars of the New Testament often refer to Matthew's gospel as the one most interested in the Jewishness of Jesus. And the reason for this is found at least in part in recognizing who Matthew is writing for. Matthew is writing for a community of Christians who still consider themselves to be a part of the Jewish faith. But even in that context, Matthew deems it worthwhile to spend a decent amount of the first two chapters making mention of foreigners he really didn't have to mention. Aside from the wise men who don't make an appearance in any other gospel, he also chooses to open with a genealogy of Jesus in which four names stand out. <coughs> Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. First, they're all female, which is enough to pique our interest since the genealogy is otherwise traced through men. And secondly, they're all women who began their lives as foreigners to Israel, but were brought into, or rather brought themselves into, the very heart of the story of the people of God, enough so that they wound up in the genealogy of Christ. There's a lot more to say about them, but that's probably an entire sermon series for next Christmas, so somebody make a note of that for me. So in this gospel that has gone out of its way to embrace the notion of a God whose inclusive love does not recognize national borders. It should be no surprise that we encounter the story of the Son of God as a refugee child, fleeing the violence of his home country, seeking shelter, seeking asylum in a more peaceful land. As Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt, taking the infant Christ child in their arms, they leave behind them a town Full of sorrow, where frightened mothers whisper lullabies to their little boys. If they can keep them quiet, their precious lives might be spared. This is one of those places where Matthew invokes the Hebrew tradition, claiming that this horrific scene fulfills the words the prophet Jeremiah spoke centuries before when he wrote that Rachel, a matriarch of the tribes of Israel, could be heard in Ramah, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And so a voice was heard in Ramah again as the lives of these children of Bethlehem were lost because of a frightened old man with a throne who wielded his power without empathy. And I can't help but imagine that voice was singing, Lili, Lule, that little tiny child. Bye-bye, Lili, Lule. As I've turned this story over and over in my mind, there's one phrase that sticks out to me as particularly significant. As Matthew recounts the reaction in Herod's court, when he learns of the wise men's arrival and their expectation that the star they've followed heralds the birth of a new king, Matthew notes that when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. 
it would be one thing for the king to feel afraid. But more often, it seems, when there is fear in those who hold positions of authority, that fear works its way into the system, into the institution. And institutional fear carries with it a human cost. By now, many of you have probably seen news coverage of a few different churches, which over the past few years have chosen to make a moral and theological statement with their annual nativity displays. These congregations have recognized the parallels between the crisis faced by Mary, Joseph, and the Christ child, and the crises faced by so many immigrant families fleeing their own King Herods, fleeing from violence and persecution toward the hope of a more peaceful land. And so during the Christmas season, they've put up their annual displays, but rather than the iconic, serene, stable scene, they've placed the Holy Family behind bars in detention. Or in one poignant reference to the still-present practice of family separation, one church placed <coughs> each member of the Holy Family in their own separate cage. Families, they wrote, belong together. This afternoon, our congregation will have the opportunity to learn from Sophia about the current situation of immigrant detention and how we can be involved right here in Monroe. And when this opportunity first arose and I saw that today's passage was this story of the holy immigrant family, I was shocked and grateful for the coincidence of how nicely the themes would tie together for the day. But as time has gone by and I've had a chance to reflect, I've realized this is no coincidence at all. In fact, it would have been more difficult for Sophia to come on any day where the text didn't support the work she's doing, the work of welcoming the stranger, the work of hospitality and peacemaking, and embodying an all-encompassing love. And I'm not just talking about loving your neighbor, although that's a great place to start. I'm talking about the explicit ways that the stories that give shape to our faith are the stories of wanderers, immigrants, and foreigners. Ruth, a woman of Moab, was widowed and chose to emigrate, and she journeyed to Bethlehem where, thank God, she was not turned away, but was welcomed with kindness. Her grandson, King David, would usher in Israel's golden age. Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Israel didn't choose to leave his own country for Egypt, but when he found himself in a foreign land, he worked hard and eventually made a way for his family to come and join him so they could share in the good fortune he had found. Centuries later, the entire nation of Israel would find themselves scattered to the winds, first as slaves in exile, but Many would eventually settle as foreigners in a strange land, always longing for the home they had known, but somehow able to live in peace. Abraham, the father of nations, is actually referred to as the wandering Aramean, a nomad by all accounts, following wherever he sensed God was leading. Even Adam and Eve, the last time we see them, are no more than silhouettes on the horizon headed off down the road east of Eden 
which is to say this wandering, this journeying, it is in our DNA. Which is to say these brothers and sisters we are turning away, they are in truth our brothers and sisters. They too share in the heritage of our first wandering parents. And we can talk about effective political solutions, though you may not believe the sanctuary is the place to do that. We're not going to endorse any candidates from this pulpit, but by God, this is the place to talk about how we treat human beings. If not here, then where? This is the place to talk about how we cultivate a spirit of love that casts out fear, the personal and the institutional. If not here, then where? This is the place to work out with grace and empathy for one another how we can each respond to this crisis because our responses will each be unique, but they are all needed. How then will we be guided in the days to come? Will we, like the Magi, be willing to follow the paths that open up for us, even if they seem to be leading us down a road toward that which is unknown? In this season of epiphany, will we have the vulnerability to open ourselves up to learning something new? And will we then have the courage to act on what we have learned? As Mary tucked the infant Jesus under her cloak, hurrying out of town under cover of night, I wonder if she could hear the other mothers shushing their own babies, singing Luli Lulay. And though I'm certain she would have shared in their fear and their pain, I can't help but think that through her tears over the grief left behind in Bethlehem, as she walked the road toward new life in a new land, the song on Mary's lips that would quiet her babbling baby all that long way must have been her Magnificat. Not a lullaby, but a powerful song of liberation and hope. My prayer for us, Northminster, is that in these days when there is so much grief around us, we too might learn to sing with Mary, to tune our step to the hope of her life-giving 